Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Ben Rhodes, a former speechwriter and foreign policy advisor to President Barack Obama. Rhodes began writing speeches for Obama in 2007 and went on to write the president's Cairo speech in 2009. In the administration, Rhodes, now 39, played a crucial role in outreach to Iran and Cuba, the latter of which Trump has recently been backtracking on. Rhodes and Obama were known to be particularly close, and Rhodes became, in the words of the New York Times, the boy wonder of the Obama White House. He is currently still working for the former president as a foreign policy advisor, but he is not speaking today on his behalf. Ben Rhodes, thank you so much for joining me today. Good to be with you, Isaac. So I wanted to begin by asking you what has been your reaction over the last five months, essentially, as you've watched the Trump administration conduct foreign policy, if you could if you could sum it up in any way. Well, what I've been struck by is um, there's not much coherence to it. They seem to act without putting their actions in any larger framework. Um, so they take fairly dramatic steps like pulling out of the Paris Agreement uh, or um, partially rolling back pieces of the Cuba policy or wading into a dispute between Gulf states uh, or I think seeing a creeping military escalation in the Middle East. Um, but they're doing this without either putting forward a broader strategic framework or staffing up their own government to implement uh, foreign policy at the State Department and Defense Department. And so the primary uh, concern I have is that around the world, uh, there's a lack of clarity about what the United States is up to, uh, a diminished confidence in our leadership. Uh, in many ways, countries uh, like our traditional allies in Europe have already moved on from uh, looking to the United States uh, for leadership. Um, so I, I feel like there is a, a vacuum uh, in the traditional role that the United States has played, uh, uh, cu- coupled with um, an administration that is kind of lurching in different directions without a clear sense of what's happening. What is your sense of why, for example, so many positions in the State Department have been left unfilled? I almost said unfulfilled, which is probably also the case, but why they've been left unfilled. Is your sense that it's incompetence? Is your sense that they don't want to fill these positions? There's been a lot of speculation about what exactly is going on, but this aimlessness, I'm I'm wondering if you see it as a result of, of strategy or a lack of ability to accomplish whatever it is they want to accomplish. Well, the... First of all, what I'd say is that there's an irony to it because in the absence of having assistant secretaries of state and defense, the government in many ways operates on some amount of autopilot uh, out at embassies or at military combatant commands. So the irony is that if they wanted to take the reins of American foreign policy, they would have to fill these positions. Um, And so by leaving them unfilled, um, they have – uh, much less capability to implement uh, any new policy direction. In terms of their motivation, I think it's a mix of things. At the State Department, clearly they have some agenda to cut and consolidate the department as a whole. Um, and they seem to be uh, applying that principle without knowing how they're going to do it. So there are going to be these dramatic budget cuts that they would like to pursue. There, There's talk of consolidating different departments. But by waiting uh, to fill any positions until they figure that out, they're not filling positions that in any restructuring they would have to have, like assistant secretaries of state for Europe or Asia or Africa. And really, I cannot overstate uh, 
what it means to not have these positions. These are the people who basically carry out U.S. foreign policy. So if we're going around to allies in Asia to talk about North Korea, uh, if we're going to Japan or South Korea or uh, any number of countries, China, uh, it's the assistant secretary of state who would do that. So we're literally not on the field in these places. So I think it's a mixture of uh, an ideological agenda to cut government, uh, some incompetence and just not identifying people, uh, frankly, probably some inability to find people who will go to work for them, uh, given the combination of trepidation that people feel about going to work for Trump and their own you know, blacklist of Republicans who uh, signed letters and participated in the campaign against him. Uh, but the end result is essentially America is not able to carry out its normal docket of global responsibilities. And do you have some sense what role Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is playing in all this? He, to me, has been one of the more mystifying figures because join join the club. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't I can't figure out what he's doing. Uh, you know, clearly he is trying to um, maintain his relations at the White House, and the people who he's surrounded himself with at state immediately uh, seem to be uh, people who are close to the White House. So he's clearly minding that relationship, but he's not really doing anything uh, that I can see to define his own agenda. You know, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, in their their first several months, they set an agenda. You knew what their policy priorities were. You knew who their key people were. They gave speeches. Uh, Rex Tillerson has not done that. He excludes the press from uh, most of his travel. He doesn't uh, really pronounce on American foreign policy. Um, And so I think there's a a lack of clarity over where he's coming from, what his priorities are, what he's focused on. He seems, uh, you know, beyond that, to have alienated in many ways his own building. You know, most secretaries of state come in, certainly Powell and Clinton, and they make a concerted effort to show that they're an advocate for their own people, you know, that they're going to try to get higher budget for the State Department, that they value the Foreign Service. Tillerson has been arguing against resourcing for his own department, um, which is an interesting way to uh, endear yourself to your own workforce, Uh, who, by the way, someone. Yeah. Yeah. No, someone on Twitter made the joke that, you know, Congress was going to punish him for this budget by funding his department. Literally. And and he's made very strange statements like we can't even spend the money we have, which is not true. Um, The State Department is actually under-resourced in most people's view. Um, So, uh, the danger for him is that uh, not only is he under-resourcing his own department, he's uh, alienating the very people he needs to carry out uh, whatever his agenda may be. I want to ask you about people who are serving for Trump because I think that there is a sense in some circles, um, probably circles that you travel in perhaps, that people like Mattis, who's the Secretary of Defense and National Security Advisor McMaster, are kind of holding the world together uh, to some degree. And I guess my question for you is, what do you make about that take? And and also, what do you make of this larger idea of, especially in national security positions, people deciding to serve Trump's government um, with the idea that, you know, you're keeping a lid on things? I mean, it's obviously a complicated ethical question, but I'm curious what you make of it. Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, um, I I just don't believe that's possible, you know, to to kind of run some internal effort to hold things together. The world looks to the president of the United States and the White House to set 
the direction for the United States. If there's a crisis, the decision about how to respond is going to be made in the White House. If there's a major initiative, a uh, decision can be made in the White House. Frankly, any sense that uh, there could be some Tillerson-McMaster effort uh, to have a kind of more sober foreign policy was thrown out the window with the Paris decision. Uh, there's nobody who works as a kind of a professional uh, on foreign policy in the U.S. government who can point to the diplomatic benefit of alienating us from the rest of the world. So if you're the Europeans and you just went through a G7 uh, summit where everybody lobbied the administration to stay in Paris, and maybe maybe that was the position of Rex Tillerson, at least he says it was, and then Trump pulls out of Paris the next week, uh, you're not going to put any currency in Rex Tillerson's ability to influence Trump. So first point I make is that that's grossly overstated, that countries know the decision is made in the Oval Office. Uh, frankly, they see Jared Kushner and uh, in some cases Bannon exerting influence in this space, and they're just not going to count on uh, Tillerson and others to, to be some alternative uh, source of foreign policy. I think the one area where um, clearly, there is some degree of, of greater influence, though, is in military policy in the Middle East, where Trump is essentially outsourcing the role of commander in chief in Afghanistan, for instance, to Mattis. So on military decisions about military operations in certain areas, uh, it may be that Mattis can, with McMaster, exert greater influence. But that's a that's a fairly narrow bandwidth uh, as it relates to larger questions of strategic direction. I think in terms of the, the calculus, um, you know, I, any, right. Cause I mean, yeah. we are, ha we are happier. I mean, I think most people are probably happier that McMaster rather than Michael Flynn is the national security advisor, even if you yes. don't think he has as much influence as, as he could. Yes. I mean, he's a, he's a recognizable figure in the kind of mainstream of American national security. Now, He's a general, and there's another strange trend of having generals in all of these different positions. As a general, his background was in Iraq and Afghanistan, so issues like Asia and the rise of China and Russia and climate change and Latin America uh, is really not something the H.R. McMaster, whatever you think of him, has been focused on. I, I do think that the conundrum for people looking at this is, look, if you're a civil servant, a foreign servant, an intelligence analyst, you have a role to play that you can fulfill – for your little piece of national interest, and I think there, that it, there's a lot of patriots doing that. If you are a political appointee, um, I think that's a different ballgame because you are signing on to be a, an appointed official of Donald Trump. And at the end of the day, you're going to be asked to defend whatever Donald Trump does, and you're going to be defined by whatever Donald Trump does. Um, and you know, given his uh, evisceration of basic norms of how government operates or how we engage our allies and and how we approach uh, certain issues around the world, you are signing up for that uh, if you are a political appointee. Do you have some sense of what went wrong with uh, then General Mattis during the Obama administration and why he uh, left early and why that relationship wasn't able to work? You know, I I I don't remember it being a particularly contentious relationship. Um, you know, he was elevated to CENTCOM commander. He served there uh, for most of his time. Um, I don't remember it being uh, a messy process where, where he, when he left. What I do remember is that from a policy matter, um, the issue on which he was uh, sometimes more aggressive and out of step um, with the direction of the administration was on Iran um, and how aggressively we should confront Iran 
um, not just over its nuclear program, but over some of its other activities. At, at that time, it was particularly its activities inside of Iraq. Um, so uh, that was the source of some policy tension, um, not so much a personality issue or anything else. Uh, I, th- you know, I think he was you know, a well-regarded uh, military officer. Um, I think if you look at the, the broader team, the one common thread between all these people is a confrontational approach towards Iran. And so that's why I do worry about um, where this is headed, because if you look at their actions, too, inside of Syria, in Yemen, in embracing the Saudi worldview almost completely uh, in the Middle East, um, there are many different slippery slopes into conflict with Iran, uh, and, and we are on a number of those slopes right now. Well, I want to talk about the Middle East because you've been very critical, um, you and many people, about the Trump approach to the region and seemingly giving a blank check to Saudi Arabia to do what it wants, whether in this current crisis with Qatar, although there have been mixed signals from the from the State Department and the bureaucracy, um, or in terms of you know seemingly Yemen to some extent or in its confrontation with Iran. My question for you is, you in the Obama administration were one of the people who was behind the deal with Iran about around Iran's nuclear program. But in aside from aside from that, which obviously was a huge thing, I'm wondering if you think your your as in the Obama administration's approach to Saudi Arabia was really that different than the one we're seeing now. I think there were similarities uh, and degrees of difference. Uh, you know, simil- the similarities were we, in general, um, looked at regional issues and were more aligned with the Gulf view of those regional issues. So we see Iran supporting Bashar al-Assad in Syria. We see Iran engaging in certain destabilizing activities uh, in, in Yemen, in Lebanon, in, in other countries. Um, I think. And so, therefore, we worked with the Gulf to try to blunt that Iranian influence, to try to interdict weapons shipments. Um, At the same time, we were very wary of an escalation into an all-out sectarian war uh, across the region. Uh, I'll give you a specific example. Uh, In Iraq, there's a very tenuous sectarian balance, obviously. When we ramped up our counter-ISIL campaign, uh, and Maliki was removed as prime minister. That was essentially a precondition for President Obama to provide more military support. The Shia prime minister, Abadi, uh, worked very hard with us to try to bring Kurds and some Sunnis into a consensus approach around how to go after ISIL. There were also Iranian-backed militias uh, called Popular Mobilization Forces uh, that were mobilized to defend Baghdad. Each time we went into a city like Ramadi or ultimately Mosul, um, there was a, a very careful effort to make sure that it was the Iraqi security forces backed by our air power, uh, our coalition, uh, that went in and cleared those places and held them uh, vis-a-vis ISIL and not uh, the Shia militias who could have just gotten into all-out sectarian conflict, which frankly is what ISIL uh, wants there to be inside of Iraq because that's the dynamic that they took advantage of. If we go into a full-on conflict with um, uh, with Iran inside of Iraq, our ability to have advisors in the country is put at risk immediately. Uh, the safety of Americans serving in Iraq is put at risk immediately, given the reach of these Shia-led militias. The ability to hold territory against ISIL is put at risk because you'll have a situation where it's devolving into a sectarian conflict. Um, so 
again, on its face, it may seem attractive. Let's stand up to Iran everywhere. Um, but if suddenly we're in a conflict in Yemen, in Iraq, uh, and inside of Syria directly with Iran, um, you know, people always think things can get worse in the Middle East. Things can get worse in the Middle East. Uh, and, and that could put American interest and American lives at stake. Right. I mean, I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, Trump has gotten a lot of a lot of um, I was going to use a four letter word for for sort of ignoring human rights or cozying up to dictators and all these things that we see on the news every day, which I think we both agree is is gross. But I'm wondering, you know, because there's been a lot of criticism of the American relationship with Saudi Arabia, which is obviously a very brutal dictatorship. And so I, I, I didn't see from your administration the same uh, let's say, desire to fawn over the Saudi regime. But um, in terms of actually speaking out about things like human rights or speaking out about the war in Yemen, where, as far as I understand, American some American weapons and military strategy and so on are being used when in a situation where a lot of civilians are dying. Is that something that you feel that the Obama administration handled well? And would you change anything? Well, I, you know, we definitely in some cases, tap the brakes. So in Yemen, at times, we withheld certain weapons. We were critical of uh, the Saudi effort because we didn't see where it was headed. You know, Yemen's a good example where the Saudi-led coalition launched a military operation without any real endgame, causing grave humanitarian suffering. Um, And my concern is, you know, if Saudi Arabia uh, had its, you know, full uh, way in terms of dictating U.S. policy in the region, we could potentially be in several wars at once. You know, we could we could be all in in Syria uh, to remove Bashar al-Assad and try to shape what happens next. We could be all in in Yemen in a war against the Houthis. Um, as I said, we could be in the m- middle of a very dangerous situation in Iraq where things are collapsing into a sectarian conflict. So we were, I think, um, trying to, uh, in many ways, uh, well, number one, we weren't going as far as the Saudis wanted us to do uh, in certain theaters. And we were trying to contain this sectarian conflict, which is tearing at the seams of the region. And so my concern is, yes, as a general orientation, we were we were partners of the Gulf. Um, but, you know, they understood, and this is why there was some criticism of us from the Gulf and many of their supporters in Washington. We understood that uh, if we didn't place some limitations on that on that uh, on that relationship, we could find ourselves uh, in multiple wars at once in service of Saudi interests, not U.S. interests. Um, the Saudi interest in essentially defeating Iran in a sectarian conflict across the region. President Obama's analysis was that is an unwinnable conflict for anybody. Um, and therefore, we have to create a, a diplomatic space for Saudi Arabia and Iran and other countries to resolve these issues. Um, and so that is a difference. That if there's a full embrace of the Saudi view, um, it could lead to a full American engagement in a Yemen, in a Syria, uh, a different type of engagement in Iraq that is more costly um, to us over time. And I think we already see, and there were more strikes in one month in Yemen uh, than we took in a previous year uh, early in the Trump administration. I mean, th- we already see uh, an uptick in this uh, this activity. And I think in, in the long run, we have to be asking, we as Americans, when is this in our interest and when is it in the Saudi interest? Because those two things are not one and the same. Let me ask you, you're, you helped write the president's, ex-president's Cairo speech in 2009. When you look back on that speech and the content of it, and also the administration's response to the Arab Spring uprisings, 
later on. What is your, in hindsight, and I, I, you know, I don't know if you want to be critical or praiseworthy, but what, what do you make when you look back at both the speech and the initial response to the, to the Arab Spring? Well, the speech is an interesting document to look at. Um, I mean, I think we were trying to lay out, here's where we want to go on a host of issues. Here's who we are as Americans. Here's the relationship that we see between the United States and Islam. Now, clearly, uh, that did not resolve the issues uh, in the region or between the United States and Islam. I do think it gave us some some important space. Um, Al-Qaeda, uh, we really tried to isolate from the religion to the point that when bin Laden was taken out, um, some of the media in his compound showed that he was so worried about the Al-Qaeda brand um, that he was seeking to rename it as some more of a religious entity. Um, we were able to get cooperation from Muslim-majority countries in many different parts of the world, uh, in part because of the presence outreach. Uh, we had to enlist the American Muslim community as partners in dealing with extremism. That doesn't mean there weren't challenges in all of those places, but I think uh, that speech and the president's overall approach gave us some space to try to isolate uh, terrorism from Islam writ large and gain some cooperation in those countries. And then in some places, there were you know, very real achievements of the president's agenda, like the Iran nuclear deal. Um, I think if you look at the balance of that speech in other areas, clearly we did not achieve anywhere near what we hoped uh, on the Arab-Israeli issue um, and on the broader uh, sense of sectarian conflict in the region. Now, the Arab Spring became, uh, in many ways, a, a you know a tidal wave that um, shaped the last six years of the administration. In our response, um, you know, I what I look back on is uh, a question. You know, I, I think in many of these places, um, you had rot- rotted societies in terms of the lack of institutions, so that when Muammar Gaddafi is is removed from power, there's nothing after him, or when there's a revolution against Bashar al-Assad, there's nothing underneath, and that there was almost some inevitability to a degree of conflict. Where I look, so where I look most at in terms of wondering if we could have done things better and differently is in places where we had more influence and uh, there were more mature institutions. I'm thinking particularly of Egypt. Um, You know, we had a window in Egypt after Mubarak was removed to try to support a transition to democracy. Um, And nothing we did uh, between uh, Mubarak's removal and ultimately Mercy's removal seemed to forestall this building train wreck, essentially, of political forces that pulled the country apart and back towards authoritarian rule. I think we must have been able to... We should have done something differently there. I think... um, which might have been what? Well, I think at the outset, um, there was, uh, you know, there, the military took uh, charge and a lot of decisions were made um, in the first several months after Mubarak left power. That, Are you talking about the American or the Egyptian military? The Egyptian military, military, right? So the okay. Egyptian military okay. takes charge. I think we in some ways fell back into our de facto relationship with the Egyptian state, which is we talk to the military. Um, and uh, at the same time, we probably didn't do enough to uh, uh, t- to understand the various political actors who are putting themselves forward, not just the Muslim Brotherhood, but others. So that um, every, every step that was taken inside of Egypt, and these were Egyptian decisions, um, 
led to this kind of binary competition between the military and the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and both the military and the Muslim Brotherhood had some interest in sidelining all other actors, you know, secular activists and people who could straddle that threshold. So, you know, I, 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 I do think it, would we have been able to exercise our leverage more aggressively in that window uh, in the several months after Mubarak? Could we have helped um, support alternative uh, movements? Could we have supported a schedule of elections uh, that uh, was different. And so you have a presidential election before a parliamentary election. So you don't have the brotherhood getting this majority and essentially walking up a ramp towards taking the levers of power. Um, people warned against that approach. So uh, again, Egypt doesn't get the same attention that Syria does, but we had more influence in Egypt than we had in Syria. Uh, by definition, we had very few levers to pull in Syria. Right. So, I mean, I guess from from previous interviews you've given and things the former president have set, has said, it seems like there's not a lot of regret about the way Syria was handled because the sense is that there were not very many good options. And Mike, is that does that seem like a fair an, summary? Yeah. And I evolved on Syria. You know, I really in that conflict was uh, agitating in some ways for intervention. And I think I was wrong. And I've said this uh, uh, because. If you look at it, um, nobody has been able to identify what what is the sequence of military actions that could have in any way stabilized the situation. Um, you could decapitate the regime tomorrow and have a situation where Hezbollah and ISIL and al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate, are the strongest armed forces in the country and they're fighting it out. Um, and then what do we do? Do we go all in or do we uh, try to work through proxies and you have a, a similar level of, of violence and instability. So I think the mistake but that, that wouldn't have been the case early on, right? Or you think it would have if if the regime had been decapitated? I'm not I'm not proposing anything. I'm just saying if the regime had been decapitated five or six years ago. If we had, presumably yeah. ISIS and Hezbollah would not have been running around. No, in charge but of, I th that's right. I But I think if, if you're talking about you know, 2012, 2013, um, you still would have had Iran and Russia uh, resisting an American-led effort to install a new regime, um, and you would have still had an assorted series of proxies fighting it out. Um, so in other words, the general direction would have been one of conflict. The, the difference between uh, Syria and every other country um, is that Iran and Russia were hell-bent on protecting their client state. Um, and at no point did they uh, indicate that you know, they would acquiesce to um, a U.S. Uh, regime change effort. Uh, it's also important to note that there was zero political or congressional authorization or support really for the United States undertaking a regime change policy in Syria, um, a military uh, intervention of that nature. And so doing that without congressional authorization, doing that without public support, um, you know, in my view, would have been setting ourselves up to fail. Um, well, l let me ask you what what your uh, just sort of a question about your own response, which was you the Obama administration made a deal help that you and the Russians helped facilitate to remove Syria's chemical weapons. I think this was in 2013 or 2014. And then as recently as several months ago, there was a Syrian chemical weapon attack on some of the regime's opponents, which then caused Donald Trump, President Trump to launch a missile strike. So I, I'm wondering when you found out about these, 
these chemical attacks, what was your what was your feeling? Because I know you defended the accord to remove what we had hoped would be most of the chemical weapons. Yeah, I and I can look. I, I think it, I was outraged uh, by the chemical attack, uh, just as um, you know. There's been many horrifying uh, crimes committed in Syria. I do think that on balance, we're still better off with the agreement we had because uh, clearly, you know, Syria went from not even declaring chemical weapons to removing, uh, you know, over a thousand metric tons of chemical weapons. I mean, documentable uh, uh, destruction of huge stockpiles of sarin. If that chemical weapons had not been removed, not only would there have been, you know, obviously a greater stockpile for the regime. Uh, it was in different parts of the country. It could have fallen into the hands of ISIS or it could have fallen into the hands of al-Qaeda. So on balance, a diplomatic effort that removes an enormous quantity of chemical weapons, I still think was uh, you know, a more effective way of preventing future chemical attacks than just launching some cruise missiles into the country. Um, and and yeah. so you don't regret the red line comments and – no, look, I, 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 I don't because that helped. That was the the predicate that led to the removal of those chemical weapons, um, which were, was one of the most, you know, most quantifiable and tangible diplomatic uh, efforts that you know, you know removed a national security threat to the United States and a, a threat to the Syrian people. Um, I do think you know that was not executed. Uh, you know, we thought. At first, that we were on a ramp towards a military intervention. Um, when there was a, a complete absence of international support for that policy, you know, the British Parliament voted against giving David Cameron the authorization. Angela Merkel said that Germany wouldn't join us, so it was really just the French who were with us. And then you had American members of Congress, the Speaker of the House, sending us a letter saying it wouldn't be constitutional uh, if we took a strike. Uh, you know, suddenly we, uh, President Obama determined, you know, this is not an environment to launch a military intervention. I think people have to face the reality that if Barack Obama did the same thing that Donald Trump did and just blowing up a runway, he wouldn't have gotten the same reaction that Donald Trump did. Uh, he would have had Republicans, uh, a mixture of people saying he needs to do more and people saying what he did is unconstitutional and, you know, he should be impeached. And, uh, in that environment, he said, look, if I'm going to do a military strike, uh, I'm going to do it the appropriate way, and that is to get congressional authorization and build support so that I have something behind me uh, if I'm going down this road. And when we t tested that proposition, it wasn't there. A lot of the Republicans who've been calling for military action suddenly changed their position were against it. Um, and at, the, at that point, a diplomatic window opened up in part because the Russians didn't want there to be a military strike uh, to remove those chemical weapons. So I will certainly acknowledge that that, that period was um, was a messy one. Um, I think that the outcome, though, uh, helped us get a significant amount of chemical weapons out of Syria and that the notion that, you know, there's a kind of a theory of everything that some people have constructed that if Barack Obama had launched, you know, cruise missiles and blown up the same runway that Donald Trump did, all of history would have been different after 2013 and 2014. And I think no, that's crazy. I, I, right. I mean, I, look, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying that America or the American military can solve any problem on earth or even should try to solve many problems. But when you look back, you know, six years ago and you see that Syria has become a world historical calamity that I think we'll probably look back on as being one of the most consequential events of the 21st century. 
it's hard to believe that the United States and other countries um, could not have done more in 2011 or 12 to limit some of the damage that we've seen. The horrific the horrific number of lives lost, lives lost, refugees, the toxic effect it's had on democratic politics all over the world. And so, again, I'm not asking you to say that, oh, we should go to war, that, you know, hindsight, of course, is 2020. But it does seem like if the if the giant, giant calamity that is Syria had been known, there was there could have been something more we could do. Or, or do you think that that's pie in the sky? Well, uh, first of all, I think that it's interesting to me that this question always gets, and I'm not saying you're opposing it, Isaac, but a lot of people pose this through the prism of the military. What about diplomacy? Um, maybe we- Well, sh- no, that's fine. Yeah, no, yeah, so I'm saying, uh, I, you know, was there a diplomatic initiative in 2011 and 2012 that could have been better designed and could have uh, mitigated uh, the conflict? Um, you know, that to me actually is- uh, something that, you know, I think people should look very hard at. Because my concern is, look, I do, I completely don't believe this notion that if we just armed some more oppositionists, things would have been different. Russia and Iran were arming the regime. They were going to have more arms. There's not really a, a, the the only successful recent example of, you know, a massive arming program uh, succeeding against Russia is in Afghanistan, which also created the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Um, so uh, I think that there's a kind of fallback position of well, nitpicking, nitpicking. nitpicking. Well, but it, but my point no, is, I was kidding. I was kidding. Well, no, it is, but you're, Isaac, I guess the 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 point is that if I worry that if the lesson we take is, boy, we should have this is a calamity, so we should have gone to war. We'll go to war next time. Um, and what is the I you know like what is the the what is the the example of military force succeeding inside the Middle East in affecting the internal politics of any Middle Eastern country? Um, I mean, the Gulf War succeeded in removing Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, um, but it did, didn't change the internal politics of Iraq. If anything, they got worse. Um, the Iraq War, we've seen what took place there. Um, and in many ways, uh, that conflict spilled into Syria because uh, a Shia-led government in Iran um, uh, radicalized uh, Sunnis in the, the area between uh, Baghdad and Damascus. Um, I worry that – I see obviously the consequences of Syria, but uh, I worry that you know, we seem to be taking these lessons of, well, we should have gone to war or arm more people. Um, and nobody has presented – it's interesting. People put that forward, but they don't present what would have happened. Um, explain to me the sequence of events by which things would be better in Syria um, through a military intervention. Um, so that's why I actually think it's interesting to look at the diplomacy in 2011 and 2012. And I think that's something that historians should look carefully at. Uh, um, was there that we missed some diplomatic window? Um, and, and did we push too hard in calling for Assad to go uh, as, as soon as we did? Those are all questions that should be on the table. Um, I'm simply saying that uh, there's a, a reflexive uh, instinct in Washington that I still don't fully – well, I guess I understand it. I, I certainly don't agree with it to, – to view all this as a military question when there's not any example of the U.S. military being able to remake the politics uh, inside of Middle Eastern countries. 
I want to turn to Cuba, which you've been very exercised about on Twitter. Um, you played a, a large role in the Obama administration's opening to Cuba, which occurred in the last year of, of the Obama administration. And Trump has recently announced that he is going to roll back some of the some of that opening. Can you talk about how you first got involved with Cuba and why you're so exercised about what's happening now? So I, I got deeply involved uh, in 2013 when I uh, initiated and, and led the U.S. secret negotiations with the Cubans between June of 2013 and December of 2014 to uh, normalize relations between our countries. Um, and so I met with the Cuba, Cubans um, you know, many times in, in that period of time, uh, went to the Vatican, uh, and then after December of uh, 2014, continued to uh, meet regularly with the Cubans, and we made a whole host of agreements to open up travel to Cuba, to increase commercial ties, to cooperate on issues like oil spill relief, disaster response, to normalize our immigration policy with Cuba, um, a whole host of, uh, of steps, um, all aimed at putting the, the conflict in the past, not being defined through this Cold War prism, and trying to open up space within the confines of the embargo, which is legislative, to let more Americans travel and, and uh, let more revenue reach ordinary Cubans. And that policy was really, uh, I think, bearing fruit. You had a Cuban private sector that is now employing 25% of Cubans. Those are people who are more empowered, who have a higher standard of living. You have travel from the United States to Cuba skyrocketing to, I think, 600,000 last year. Uh, that's all people bringing new ideas, new revenue directly to Cubans. Uh, you have American businesses that were starting to get into Cuba. Um, and, and that's just one slice of this opening. Um, where I, I took issue with what Trump did, uh, you know, substantively, he did not really reverse things. We have embassies. All the bilateral agreements remain in place. There's still going to be far greater travel than there was before December 17th, 2014, when we announced normalization. However, substantively, he basically placed strict limitations on how uh, much of an impact the policy can have because he did limit the ability of individuals to travel, which will, I think, diminish the number of travelers. Uh, and that will hurt ordinary Cubans who depend on revenue from those travelers. This is people who eat in restaurants and uh, shop at small stores. Uh, he also placed limitations on the ability of American businesses to do anything or American travelers to do anything that touches the Cuban military, which owns a big chunk of the economy. So uh, by definition, that you know uh, will place a limit on a commercial opening. You know That doesn't change everything we did by any stretch. However, the reason I think it's so pointless and one of the reasons I was so frustrated is it, it, it accomplishes nothing um, except to put a conflict paradigm on the U.S.-Cuba relationship. You know, the best thing we got out of the, the opening to Cuba was, yes, helping Cubans, but also the position of the United States in Latin America was higher than it had ever been. Uh, it was welcomed around the world. So we just basically gave back all of that goodwill um, for nothing, uh, and because it, it, it's only well, we're doing that all over the world. Why, why, why leave Latin America? Out, yeah. So? Well, yeah, and the, the pointless nature of it was what was frustrating to me. You know, it's not well, as let, yeah, because it doesn't. Well, no, I was just yeah. Well, I was just going to ask you. I mean, Cuba is a country that's been built up in the American mind. In a way, it's sort of romanticized and vilified, and I mean, vilified for some some good reasons. But um, I, I wanted to ask. 
what was your experience dealing with people in the Cuban government there? What, what, you know, when you were having these negotiations, was there something that surprised you about the country or about the people who ran it that was different than you were expecting? Yeah, I think that uh, the people who ran it, the United States makes a, a basic, or not not the country, but uh, I think our our foreign policy apparatus or sometimes makes a mistake of, and certainly our politics of looking at any one party system or state as therefore monolithic. In other words, everybody in the Cuban Communist Party must think the exact same thing, or everybody inside of uh, Iran's government must be, by definition, uh, a hardliner with the same view of the world. And I think that that's an incredibly short-sighted way of looking at things. What I found is there is a diversity of views inside of the Cuban Communist Party. There are people who want to remain closed, who oppose what Cuba did with the United States. Uh, I think Fidel Castro opposed what Cuba did with the United States um, because they are perfectly comfortable being in a paradigm where they're standing up to the ugly Americans and you know the embargo gives them a rationale for cracking down on dissent. Uh, and remaining in power. And then there are Cubans in the Communist Party who want to diversify their economy, who want to reform their economy, who want uh, to not be beholden to China or Russia and want, therefore, to have relations with the U.S. and the West as well. Um, and the, what we just did with Trump is uh, validate the worldview of the most hardline elements in the Cuban Communist Party who say, see, it's not worth opening up the United States. They're always going to uh, just revert back to this uh, conflict uh, regime change type approach. Um, therefore, we should clamp down even harder. Um, so what? that's one thing I learned. The other thing I learned, frankly, is that Cubans, ordinary Cubans, love the United States and want more travelers and want more engagement. And it's kind of crazy and self-defeating to say that we're going to do something to help the Cuban people, even though that's not what they want. And even though it strengthens hardliners in Cuba, because there are a couple of members of Congress who got a favor from Donald Trump. I mean, that's basically what just happened. I want to just ask you a couple. I know I only have a few minutes. So I just want to ask you some some quick questions. Um, maybe we can go through these more rapidly. Um, my, the first is, this is actually my last longer one, but how do you feel the Obama administration's response to Russian interference in the 2016 elections was? And do you think a stronger response should have been taken in hindsight now? Well, I think that that I think we did a couple of things. We certainly tried to secure the election itself and our cyber infrastructure, um, and we told the public that Russia was interfering in the election. Um, and uh, anything beyond that, you know, I mean, I think the way President Obama has looked at this is, you know, after that statement was issued in early October, um, there was the certainly ability of both voters and the U.S. media to look at any WikiLeaks release or uh, through the prism of this is Russia. Uh, and yet our society didn't have the antibodies to resist it, right? You know, the, every WikiLeaks email was still treated as newsworthy and stacked up uh, one upon the other day after day after day. Um, in terms of what we could have done differently, you know, I, I think – uh, there's what the government could do and what the country could do. Um, you know, uh, the government could have made more noise, I guess, uh, about what Russia was doing. Um, you know, likely uh, that would have been met by Donald Trump saying that, see, we're rigging the election and it would have been put into a partisan prism. 
Um, I think in general, what we I mean, and that happened anyway to some, extent. and it happened anyway to some extent. So it's another one of these things where it's hard to see the counterfactual where more statements about Russian interference would have made people do anything other than see this uh, in a partisan manner. Um, I do think generally, though, um, the U.S. Um, you know, we saw Russia doing this type of thing in Europe, um, and we might not have been prepared for the scale of what they were going to bring in terms of fake news and hacking and releasing information uh, as a country. And I mean the government, the media, you know, the, the people – because if you – what I notice is in, in subsequent elections in France uh, and now in Germany, they're dealing with this in a different way. Uh, Trump's election – and 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 the kind of Russian uh, role in meddling in our election clearly sent shockwaves across the West, and I I think you saw the French handle in an interesting way where the 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 Macron campaign called it out even before it happened. They said this is going to happen. The media refused to report on the Macron leaks, and Russia basically couldn't impact that election. And you see the Germans doing similar things, and so in some ways. That's a Meanwhile, lesson to us. Uh, Putin will be speaking at the RNC in 2020. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess reading some of the news accounts of the decision making that went on, it did seem like there was a certain complacency among Obama people. If the news accounts are correct, that Hillary was going to win and we'd get past this and life would go on. I mean, not that there wasn't the same complacency among, uh, let's say, you know, analysts like myself writing about politics. But I mean, do you think that that was true at all? Well, I think. You have to break this into pieces. The, the piece that really comes to the government is the cyber piece, right? And the hacking and releasing of emails. Um, and, you know, we did take that very seriously. Uh, I think what changed is Russia hack, you know, Russia has been a, a cyber adversary for years. This, um, this modality where they start releasing everything was new. Um, and so simply cybersecurity wasn't enough. It's how do you deal with the fact that this information is going to be released? I, I, and that's where I think it gets to the broader question because some of the other things that happened were not um, within the necessarily the purview even of the Obama administration. So if there was any collusion, the White House would not have known about that. The FBI would have taken that into a criminal investigation channel, right? So you know any decisions around investigating potential collusion, uh, that would have been handled by the FBI without seeking the – uh, advice or input of the Obama White House because that's how we our system deals with Americans. The fake news creation and propagation um, that's as much an issue for Facebook as the U.S. government. You know, we we don't have the ability to say what is fake news and real news. Although <laughs> Donald Trump tries to do that, but um, so if you see my point, Isaac, that you can look at the U.S. government's piece of it under Obama, which really was the cyber piece and how do we respond to that? And how much attention do we try to bring to that? But the totality of what Russia did um, involves law enforcement, if, if there was collusion. It involves the U.S. media and social media platforms, if there was fake news propagation. So it's not something that uh, could have been dealt with exclusively by government. And that's why I think it raises these bigger questions about how are we going to create more antibodies to this going forward. Um, okay, now I really will get to some quick questions. Um, first, why are you and Obama the last two people on earth who say ISIL instead of ISIS? You know, the, <laughs> the irony is that uh, I actually 
say ISIS interchangeably, the U.S. intelligence community used the acronym ISIL. Um, and so it wasn't a policy decision. It was like that was how we received the information. So that's how we talked about it. Maybe Trump is right that we need to clean up our intelligence community. <laughs> how often do you communicate with Obama now? Uh, just about every day, unless, he, unless he's traveling, unless he's traveling. How do you think he's dealing with being an ex-president? Must be psychologically a big change. Yeah, no, I, th- I think he's very, um, uh, he's, you know, he's very happy in what he's doing. You know, he's excited to set up a foundation. Eight years, I think he would be the first to say, is long enough to be president. I, and I think he feels good about what he did. Um, so uh, in some ways, he's, uh, you know, the, the pictures tell the story. He's, he's a happy guy in what he's doing and he's interested in what he's doing. Um, you know, at, at the same time, uh, obviously, things are moving in a different direction from much of what he did. Um, and I, but I think his view is, uh, you know, he will speak out on certain issues that cross a certain threshold, like pulling out of Paris or, or, or uh, certain moments in the healthcare debate. Um, but, you know, the Democratic Party's got to step up uh, and new leaders have to emerge. And he wants to, to allow enough space for that to happen uh, as well. Do you have some sense of what his his interactions with Trump were like before um, before January twentieth? You know, basically, he offered to be as helpful as possible. I think Donald Trump is uh, he Obama. I think Donald Trump is you know capable of getting along with someone who's in the room with him. Uh, um, my sense of it was um, while they had a good you know personal interaction in their first meeting, they spoke on the phone several times. You know, Trump clearly has. In, uh, moved in a different direction on a whole host of things. Um, so, you know, I think there were decent enough interactions. Uh, you know, the question is, uh, you know, what, what has Trump choose, chosen to do? And, and on a lot of issues, he's clearly moved in a different direction. Do you know if Obama is still in touch with world leaders and um, what those interactions are like? Yeah, I've, I've been with him. I was with him with uh, dinner with Justin Trudeau. I was with him when he saw Angela Merkel. Um, and, uh, David Cameron and Matteo Renzi. Uh, he talked to Emmanuel Macron. You know, look, I, I think some of these are current leaders who he knew well. Some of these are former leaders who he knew well. I think he shares a lot of uh, values and orientation with them. Um, and, uh, you know, th- the irony is that Obama used to – a lot of the things Obama used to get criticized for, like, are actually happening. <laughs> you know, so Obama used to get criticized for, you know – Trashing our alliances, which I never understood. Um, when, end of American exceptionalism. Yeah, and end of American exceptionalism and not having close personal relationships with leaders. And I think you see when Obama has 70,000 people greet him in Berlin, that's American exceptionalism. When Obama has a very close personal friendship with Angela Merkel or Matteo Renzi or Justin Trudeau, he clearly had close personal relationships. He clearly valued alliances. So um, on the one hand, I think you know he – uh, gets along well with these people. They enjoy seeing each other. They enjoy, uh, you know, catching up about what they're doing. Uh, on the other hand, you know, he's not the president, and and you know, they they know that they're de- these are savvy world leaders. They know they're dealing with Trump, not Obama, and and so there's a limit, obviously, to any business that is done. I mean, uh, uh, right in these discussions. Um, the last two quick things very quickly. The first is, do you regret doing uh, the big New York Times profile about you, which became one of the most talked about pieces of the Obama administration? I don't. Um, I regret certain things. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I let me put it this way. Uh, 
I every time you talk to a journalist, you take a risk, right? Um, I don't like some of the things that were in the profile in terms of how they're presented. In particular, uh, obviously, like I believed deeply in the case we made on Iran, and the author of the profile just asserted that there weren't moderates in Iran, so we had made up a narrative. Well, and so to this day. People assert that I made up a narrative. Well, no, I believe the narrative uh, that Hassan Rouhani is a more moderate leader than others inside of Iran. And after his election, we made progress towards a nuclear deal. And I never quite understood um, uh, uh, the way in which that, which was an opinion, began to be asserted as fact and repeated as fact even by uh, I think mainstream commentators. Uh, so the whole treatment of Iran, I think, was uh, you know was entered a kind of funhouse of mirrors, and uh, and now now I think there are things that are asserted about that article and me that are certainly not things that I ever said out of my own mouth, um, and uh, aren't even necessarily what even the author said. They go beyond that. But put that aside, Isaac, and, and this is one of the reasons why I was glad to do your podcast. I I was trying to raise you know, probably inartfully in a couple of places, a couple of pretty important points. Um, the the fact that the American foreign policy establishment is, uh, I think, reflexively interventionist and um, reflexively reaches for the military as the principal tool in the Middle East in particular is a big issue. And I think there needs to be a lot more discussion of that. And and I think that we're going to see a lot more of that under Trump um, because, you know, it was pretty remarkable to me that of all the things he did, um, when he bombed another country with no clear explanation to the American – and I mean the Syria attack – with no clear explanation to the American people about what he was doing, with no clear effect and – in a, in a yeah, it was it was alarming that how much praise he got, and especially from for someone who we know more than anything uh, craves praise. Well, that but that's when but that's that's an important issue, and 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 I don't I don't get uh, and I've noticed that the you know the the term I use the blob. Some people now take it as kind of a badge of honor, and they say that that's about you know defending the liberal order. Well, no, I mean Barack Obama defended the liberal order. It's about why does. Why do we have to all why, – why do you have to support that military action uh, almost to be a card-carrying member of the foreign policy establishment? There's, there is this reflexive military intervention that doesn't get enough discussion and there is uh, a retreat from, uh, you know, I think a fact-based – the point I was trying to make about the media is that everything is put through a political prism um, so that foreign policy is covered as – uh, what does this mean for Trump or what does this mean for Obama or John McCain criticized Barack Obama or so-and-so criticized Trump and not what is actually happening in these countries. Um, and when we start to see these complex foreign policy issues as pure domestic political issues, um, I think that you know that affects decision-making in strange ways uh, as, as well. And so some of the underlying points that uh, were in the article um, – I think are important ones. And I've noticed that when I get out of Washington and talk to people, you know, they thought about those <laughs> issues. And so it stirred the pot. Uh, I certainly didn't like all the, you know, the the things that came out of it. Um, but I, I think that it'd be a mistake. Obama must have teased you for it. He did no. a little bit. But I mean, I think he, 
uh, you know, he got his own, uh, you know, um, it's interesting that came after the Atlantic article he did. Uh, you know, I would, I think that th- what's also strange about <laughs> sometimes Isaac in Washington is that people want, you know, say they want you to be blunt and raise these difficult issues. And then there's, you know, you're punished for doing so. Um, a lot of what I said in that article, people say to each other all the time in Washington, you know. Um, but if you say it out loud, you know, uh, you, you've crossed a, a certain line. And I, I, I don't know. I think that on the, those issues of covering foreign policy as political theater, uh, which not everybody does. I mean, you certainly don't. Um, uh, but, but some people do. And why There's are no point in being nice to me at the end of the show. It's already yeah, over. yeah. But but why? But and why our our foreign policy establishment is wired this way? Um, those are really important questions. And you know, I, I, unfortunately, I think the the way in which I got piled on after that is going to make the next person you know who has some of those. Who I know many people who share those views. Right, Ben Rhodes. Thank you for joining us. Before we go, is there any? Um conspiracy theory that someone like yourself who once had security clearance can tell us uh, is actually true about the U.S. government? <laughs> um, no, you know, you keep waiting to get the briefing on um, Area 51 or, you know, what really happened. Bin Laden next... raid? Bin Laden raid? Um, no, the, well, those are... you read the conspiracies about that, i read I'm the sure. conspiracies. You know, I will tell you, it is strange to see uh, how... Um, uh, how how people create whole the weirdest one was i think there was a seymour hirsch piece about how the chemical weapons attack was actually some false flag thing people take very thin reads of uh, you, know, you know secondary information and spin these totally fantastical um narratives out of them um uh, i will tell you that the thing that uh i'm most struck by uh from having been in government is uh you know it's not intelligence can give you a picture of a certain slice of an issue, you know, on a given day. Um, But you can fall in the trap of that being, you know, a a bit of a, a, of a narrow lens, right? Because it never shows you the full picture. Uh, You do just as well to read up on the histories of places um, as a companion piece. So no conspiracy theories and, uh, and uh, you know, frankly, very little surprising. I mean, I think a, a well-informed person who follows the news closely would not find much surprising in the PDB every day. Ben Rhodes, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Isaac. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from AC Valdez. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Don't miss out on more episodes of this show. Go to slate.com slash ask to subscribe. That's slate.com slash A-S-K. And one other thing, if you're looking for more great podcasts from Slate, why don't you check out Trumpcast? I listen to it all the time. The rotating hosts are Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, and Jamel Bowie, and they dive deep into all things Trump. Stay up to date on his latest tweets, his latest scandals, and all the news about him. Find it at slate.com slash Trumpcast.